Good morning. I hope that you all are doing well and resting in the sufficiency and the kindness of the Lord Jesus this morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38, page 172 in a Genesis journal, if you have one. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We are in the midst of the life of Jacob and his sons. And so last week, uh, we began sort of the last section of the narrative of the book of Genesis. Chapter 37 begins with, this is the genealogy of the sons of Jacob. And we are continuing to look at God's faithfulness and his covenant promises through the family of Abraham. Uh, there is a little bit of a parental guidance warning in this chapter. Um, you're like, thanks for the heads up. This is like right now. Um, so I may edit a word or two as I read, uh, read along. And um, that's not to change the word of God, but just to protect you and me from a thousand questions from kids that shouldn't ask the questions yet. Um, the events of this chapter span about 20 years, and they're happening in the aftermath of the betrayal of Joseph, but overlap some of the chapters that are going to follow this chapter. Uh, and so it's inserted right in the middle of this narrative, but it does happen between when Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, which we saw last week, and when his brothers go to Joseph in the midst of the famine to uh, find relief from the famine. This chapter seems very much like an interruption to the narrative. And if you were to look, read chapter 37 and then go into chapter 39, the, the text would flow seamlessly. And instead, you have what appears to be this interjectory blight on the text. This is not a, it's not a great story. If the Bible was mainly trying to give you whitewashed characters that were free of sin, this chapter would not be inserted here. It would, you just would go right on into the story of Joseph. But remember, this narrative is not mainly about Joseph, though he's a main character in this section. It's mainly about all of the line of Jacob and his sons. And so when we see something interjected into a narrative that would have been cleaner without it, that is intentional. It's as if the writer's highlighting the events of this chapter, saying this is important not just to the story of Genesis, but into the overarching narrative of redemptive history. This is important. Lean in. Uh, one of the things that this chapter is going to do is show us how Judah goes from selling his brother into slavery into being the kind of man that would offer himself in the place of his younger brother in Genesis chapter 44. So a lot of this kind of jump starts helps you understand who Judah is and what jump starts part of his transformation. And uh, what we know, if you've read through Genesis or what we're going to see as we study along, is that the blessing of the firstborn would travel through Joseph and his family, but the, pro the promise of the coming seed that was promised to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham, the offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, would travel through the line of Judah. And so this story is integral in understanding that. And as we're reading through Genesis, you could imagine readers going through and the whole time we're looking, where, what of this promised seed 
the seed that was going to crush the head of the serpent, or the seed that was promised to Abraham, through whom all the offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Where is this seed? And so that is part of this narrative as we're looking and trying to discern where God is going to showcase his faithfulness to his promise in that way. So in this chapter, we're going to see both the holiness and the righteousness of God, the severity of God, and the overwhelming and shocking grace and kindness of God. So before we read, let's pray and ask God to speak. Father, we bow before you, rejoicing in the fact that we have been brought near and made children by the blood of Christ, and also trembling before your word with holiness as we know we're unworthy even to hear from you. So I pray that you would put a a humility in our hearts, a desperation in our hearts, that we would come full of faith and wonder that the God of all the universe, the creator of everything that we can see and can't see, would condescend to speak to us. Lord, make us thirsty and hungry. May May your word rush in like refreshing springs on dry ground. And I pray that you would give us, even from a, a surprising place, a word from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah, remember at that time referring to they had just sold Joseph into slavery. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. We are going to read the rest of this text, but I want to break it up into scenes. In scene one, we see the wickedness of Judah and his sons. This is going back to what we say often that the characters in the Bible aren't made clean for felt Sunday school lessons where you can just stick them up and, and these are all uh, characters to emulate. That's not the message of the Bible is that God only calls perfect people to himself. What you see here is the wickedness of Judah and his sons. You can see this first in Judah's lust uh, and his disregard for the promise of God. Uh, 
the language that he saw and took this Canaanite woman is just him giving into his lust. It's the same kind of language for the woman saw the fruit and she took it and she ate it. He, he saw what was seemed pleasing to his eyes and he took her. Now, all of the patriarchs to this point have been careful not to take a wife from among the Canaanites because the Canaanites were this embodiment of sin and idolatry in the land that God was sending them in to take the land from. And so Abraham says to his servant for Isaac in Genesis 24, be careful not to take a wife from among the Canaanites for Isaac. And in Genesis 28, Isaac to Jacob uh, and Esau married a Canaanite despite his dad in anger. So this was a known thing that marrying among the Canaanites was a no-no. But Judah saw that she was appealing to him and he wanted her. And so he took her for his wife, uh, really in spite of the, the mandate that God had given the patriarchs. Then you see him withholding his youngest son from Tamar and he keeps her bound in his household. So We'll get into this in a bit, but it was the father's responsibility or the father-in-law's responsibility to have this daughter-in-law marry his son so that offspring would be raised up for the deceased son. And when he sees that Tamar seems like a black widow of sorts or bad news, he withholds his youngest son from Tamar in spite of what he knew was right in the sight of God for him to do in this instance. And then after his wife dies, apparently, we'll see that it was a common practice for him to seek out prostitutes, that this was his, his normal way of life. This was who Judah was. Then you have his firstborn, Ur, and all the text says about him is Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, and it says in the sight of the Lord, that means he's truly wicked. The Lord's sight is the only sight that matters. It doesn't matter how you feel or appear to yourself in your own sight or how other people appear to you. What matters is whether you're righteous or wicked in the sight of the Lord. And we know that the wages of sin is death, but rarely do we see this kind of immediate judgment enacted on sin where we see it so explicit and that by itself highlights the long-suffering and the mercy of God. God is so merciful that we feel entitled to his mercy. And we feel shocked when we see the wages of sin enacted so immediately. It makes God seem harsh or trigger-happy. But this text is highlighting that God is holy. He is the one who kills and the one who makes alive. And he judges with perfect justice, always. He renders to each person according to what they deserve. And he will judge every single sin with perfect justice. He either judges it immediately or he will judge it at the coming day of the Lord or miracle of miracles at the cross. But every sin will be dealt with. Either you will pay for your sins or Jesus paid for your sins, but all sins will be paid for, sometimes immediately and sometimes highlighting his long-suffering and his patience. He waits. But you can see this immediate judgment for violating the honor of God and not prizing God and obeying God according to the glory due his name is what we actually deserve. 
And you can see instances of this throughout the Old Testament. There's a plague on the people when they make the calf in the wilderness, or when they long for Egypt and they grumble against God. God uh, puts them to death and swears that none of that generation will enter into his rest. Among that same wilderness generation, God killed 23,000 people in a single day when they were engaged in sexual immorality among the Moabites. They were, they were having this orgy of sorts, and it was uh, just, he killed 23,000 in a day because God is holy. Or when they complained in the wilderness, again, among the wilderness generation in Numbers 21, and God sent poisonous snakes among them. And many of them died. And mercifully, because of the intercession of Moses, God made a way for them to be saved from the judgment that they deserved among those serpents. But poisonous snakes for their complaining against God was what they deserved in that moment. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah for reaching out to protect the Ark of the Covenant from the ground, the the place where the presence of God rested. And Uzzah reaches out when the oxen stumbled and presumes that he would be more holy than the earth. And he reaches out to touch it, to protect it. And God struck him dead. And this is the only time in the word of God that we hear that David was described as angry with the Lord. And it's because David, like us, felt more kinship with sinners than he did with the Holy God. I think that David thought it was unreasonable of God that he would actually strike him dead for just trying to protect or do something that seemed so reasonable, trying to honor God and protect God's presence from hitting the ground. But God is holy and cannot, he's so pure, he cannot even look upon evil. Or Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And God saw that as a despising of his holiness and of worshiping him as he prescribed. And when they offered fire that God did not send from heaven, God consumed them. And Aaron wasn't allowed to grieve. God is holy. This is, when, when he says the wages of sin is death, that, that's the real wages of real sin, and it really is death. Now, the coming of Christ did not alter the holiness of God or somehow change God or dilute his holiness or make him change the severity of his judgment against sin. So in Acts chapter 5, you see the same kind of thing with Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't, they weren't obligated to give all the proceeds of the real estate sale to the church, but when they gave some of the proceeds to the church, and they lied and said that they gave all the proceeds of the sale to the church. Peter says, why did you feel comfortable lying to the Holy Spirit? And God killed them. This is in the early church. They lied to God, and God is holy, and he took them out. You look with non-believers, Herod in Acts chapter 12. When people are praising Herod and saying, the voice of God and not of a man. And because Herod refused to give God glory and he received the glory that came from man, he was struck dead in the instant. Or maybe more running closer to home was those in the early church that approached the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Listen to this. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So listen to that. What he's saying is people come to the Lord's table prizing their sin more than the forgiveness that the Lord's table represents. They come not confessing their sins and receiving the forgiveness of Jesus, but with hidden sin in their lives and trying to gloss over it and receive the grace and the forgiveness of God without repentance and God to protect some of them from themselves kills them so as to keep them from further dishonoring of God with their lives. So whatever Ur did or however he was, was described as wicked in God's sight in, in such a conspicuous way. And he received from God, listen to this, what he asked for with his life. God was not unjust in striking Ur dead. He, he gave Ur according to what Ur asked for with his life. Then you have the second son, Onan. Judah says to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now Judah's referring to a practice that in the law would come to be known as leveret marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, God prescribes this in the law, mandating that if anybody's um, husband died, it was the duty of that man's brother to take his widow as his wife and raise up offspring for his brother and thereby building up his brother's house so that his name would not be blotted out from Israel. This was an obligation of the brother-in-law to take on his widow as his own wife. So Onan marries Tamar, and it looks like he's doing the duty of a brother-in-law. He, he outwardly appears righteous, but at home, in ways that only his wife knows, he dishonors God, and he, he chooses himself and his own lust and his own pleasure, and he acts wickedly against God. Now, I think there's maybe multiple ways, but this is wicked for at least three ways. One, he's refusing to honor his brother. He's, he's prioritizing himself and his own pleasure, and he cares only for himself. Now, presumably, any kind of inheritance that would have gone to his brother was now only going two ways. So if, if Judah was to leave $100,000 to his three sons and one of the sons dies, now Onan and Shelah both have a 50,000 share each. If he raises up offspring for his brother, he goes back down to 33. So this is, this is not just uh, selfish on one level. This is a, a very complex level of selfishness where he's wanting to prioritize himself, his own gain, his own pleasure, and the, the text literally says, when he, he, knowing that the offspring would not be his, then he waits to deceit on the ground. Now, this is going against the created, the, order, the created order and the mandate that God gives at creation to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. But it also goes against this mandate in the covenant that this family was to be fruitful and to multiply and that God would send his offspring through this family as 
they multiplied their offspring like the stars of heaven, that God would be a blessing through them. And so Onan is prioritizing his own lust and his own will over the will of God, which we talked about in a message from Genesis chapter 30 on letting God be God and not prioritizing our own will and our own plans over the plan of God, even as it relates to something that we thought that God gave us control over, like family planning. But at the, at the core of this is a disregard for the patriarchal promises, these covenant promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Listen to the recurring word offspring in this. Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And at, at this point in the narrative, this word for offspring is used almost exclusively with regards to the promise that was given to Adam and Eve about the offspring that would conquer the, uh, crush the head of the serpent, and to the promised offspring of Abraham that would be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. So this was, this was wicked by itself for him to prioritize his own will over the will of God. But it was so much more than that because it was, it was proactively countering and working against the blessing of God and the promise of God to bless all the world through the coming offspring who was going to be Christ Jesus himself. And so because of his refusal to procreate for these reasons, what does God do? He kills him. So, so far with Judah's first two sons, they are so wicked in the sight of God that God kills them both immediately. Tamar is left as a widow. She's sent back to her father's house. She's childless, and she's wronged by her father-in-law who sees her as a sort of threat. Now, his sons were dying for their own wickedness, and he was putting that wickedness on her and saying, this this woman must be bad news. And so he withholds his youngest son from her. So we go into scene two. I've called this scene scheming at Mardi Gras. You're welcome. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. The reason why I'm calling this scheming at Mardi Gras is because shearing sheep wasn't just this, hey, I'm going to go up in, to a buddy's house and we're going to spend a day shearing our sheep. This was a festival where everybody would go. All these shepherds would go and there's tons of men in one spot. They're all shearing their sheep and there was loads of wine involved and a lot of drunkenness involved and a lot of partying involved. And so... You've got to hear that when it says he was going up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He was going up to this festival. And so Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So again, she was, it was, this was, Unjust. This was a responsibility of Judah to give her to his youngest son so that offspring could be raised up and she would not be left 
as a childless widow in her father's house. And some time had passed to where she knew Judas kept me engaged to this young man, but he has no intention of actually letting me marry him. And so she's going to be stuck as an engaged woman to this man that Judah has no intention of actually marrying off. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge, if, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he interrupts her and he says, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So a couple of observations before we run to the next scene. This, this scheme is, is wrong on so many levels. I mean, I've told you guys, I referenced this other portion of the family history as like Jerry Springer meets Judah, right? This is the same kind of idea. This is wrong on all the levels. But highlights Tamar's desperation living as a widow in her father's house, that she would be willing to go through this scheme in order to escape the shame and the, the plight that she was living in as a childless widow in that culture. She obediently waits in her father's house until she realizes that Judah doesn't intend to do what's right. But note, she did not have to seek him out. Right? This is why I'm saying it seemed like this was a practice of Judah after the death of his wife, because in her mind, all she has to do is put herself in position on the roadside and this plan will be able to be pulled off, which would highlight the fact that this is the kind of man that Judah was. She requires a pledge from him, which was worked as kind of a safety net for her. And in, in this day, what she asked of him was kind of like saying, I need your keys and your wallet, right? She's got this pledge that he would be easily identified by and be able to kind of hold him hostage for. And so in the aftermath of his sin, Judah hides. This is not just like, hey, this was more acceptable back then in that culture. This is, he sends his friend to deliver the payment and to go get his stuff because he doesn't want to be seen as the kind of guy that would do what he did after the festival. And so he sends his friend with the payment. They can't find her. And when she's not there, instead of Judah being broken over sin or being fined out, he's more afraid of being caught in it and being seen as a laughingstock or being mocked by the people of the land, which we'll see what's coming to him. So scene three, Tamar is vindicated and Judah is humbled. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, the law, which would come later, would demand death for such evil. 
That, that in and of itself. So before you read into that and think, this is so unjust of him. What we know is unjust is how hypocritical he's being. But the law would actually demand death in such instances. Listen to, I left the chapter off. I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 21. You can go check it later. Verse 23. If there is betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So what they did is evil in the sight of God. And we also, I've already seen that God killed Ur for what was wicked in his sight, and he killed Onan for what was wicked in his sight. And specifically, the law would say for a father-in-law sleeping with his daughter-in-law in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 12, If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. And later in the same law, death by burning was like the most extreme kind of consequence. It was reserved for the, in in this kind of sin, for the daughter of a priest, right? So this is like her, her dad is a priest and consecrated to the Lord as a priest in Israel. And so if she profanes herself by this kind of activity, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So even with this condemnation of Tamar, Judah is elevating himself, giving her the worst kind of sentence for his nobility and his sense of honor. Like, how dare she shame me like this? Put her to death by fire. Now this should remind us of passages like Romans chapter 2 or John chapter 8. In Romans 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about removing the log that's in your own eye before removing the speck that's in your brother's, because this is who we are. This is how you are naturally bent to be outraged by the sin of other people and very forgiving to yourself. In John chapter 8, we see the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Many have speculated something like from the call to worship of God delights in mercy more than a sacrifice. They continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, isn't that interesting? It's the the older ones who walk away first. The ones who, they, they know how sinful they are. They've lived their entire life and they kept hoping for change and hoping for transformation. And they know their sin and are more acquainted with their sin than any of the younger ones who may feel themselves more self-righteous and no one is left after taking account of their lives. 
And Jesus is the only one who is left. And he would have been perfectly justified as God to stone her in that moment. He could have. He is the only one who is without sin. And it was what the law required. So Jesus stands up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now remember, all sin is going to be punished and dealt with by God. Either in the moment or at the coming judgment of God or at the cross. And so in this moment, when Jesus is saying, I don't condemn you, he's not saying, let's just brush this under the rug and forget that it happened. He's saying, I will take your stoning for you at the cross. Now go and sin no more. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 38 and Judah is calling for Tamar being burnt alive for committing a sin that he himself had committed with her. But he doesn't know it yet. So verses 25 and 26. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now, let me ask you a question. Having read this chapter up to this point and seeing how God dealt with Judah's sons, how would you expect for God to deal with Judah in this moment? You think about it. His sons act wickedly and God kills them on the spot. Both of them, Ur and then Onan. And then here's Judah acting reprehensibly, committing worse sins and then calling for the judgment of somebody for committing the same sin that he committed. So not only is he licentious and immoral, but a hypocrite and self-righteous. And I think it highlights the fact that we are more shocked when God gives people the wages of their sin than when he doesn't. What should shock us in this passage is that Judah lives. Not that his sons are put to death. This is the miraculous, amazing, shocking grace of God. The, the patience of God, the long suffering of God, what Judah gets instead of what he deserves is the gift of humiliation. He receives in this moment this public humiliation where his sins have found him out. And if you look at the narrative of Judah's life, this seems to be the hinge and the turning point where God gets a hold of his heart because he empties him of himself and brings him to a a place of humility and brokenness. It's the beginning of a humbling of this hardened man. You can see the, the hint of repentance and the beginnings of change in the text saying he did not know her again. And later in chapter 44, we're going to see this same man offering himself in the place of his brother Benjamin, choosing to be imprisoned instead of him and held hostage instead of him in a a sacrificial kind of way that this Judah that we've seen to this point would never have done. And his transformation would prove to be all of grace and not merit. God mercifully did not deal with Judah according to his sin or 
treat him according to his iniquity. Not because he couldn't have, but because God is gracious and he extended his grace to Judah and to Tamar. And so we come to the final scene, the, the birth of these twins. Now it's Genesis, so there's going to be some kind of birth of twins in dramatic fashion. In verse 27, we read, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So, In this whole story, we see a couple of themes being reinforced that have been recurring in Genesis. One is that there is justice that God brings about for the one who is wronged. And we're in the midst of a story of Joseph being massively wronged by his brother. So there's hints of the coming justice that will be done. But in the Joseph narrative, there's also this younger having priority over the older and God choosing the younger instead of the older, which is a recurring theme in Genesis. And that's reinforced here as this one kid is already down the birth canal, already sticking a hand out, somehow comes back up and his other brother comes in front of him. And it's, it's God's priority on choosing the younger over the older and doing away with the first in order to establish the second or what comes after. But the Lord's grace, his undeserved, remember grace is this lavish, unmerited kindness of God. And his grace on this family is so abundant, his blessing so rich to Perez that he's actually referenced in blessing from the people and the leaders of Bethlehem when Boaz marries Ruth. And they say to them, they say to Boaz, may you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And to these families, God gave the ultimate blessing in that the promised seed, the son of David, the the promise to Abraham came through this line, this adulterous, crazy scheme that was so messed up. And it was of all the lines of all the stories that Jesus could have chosen to insert himself into, he chose this family. Matthew chapter 1, when Matthew's recounting the genealogy of Christ, we read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. She's the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. It's God honoring her and giving her justice, but also this forgiveness and this mercy on Judah and Tamar when they both deserve the judgment of God like his sons have received. And instead what they get is grace and honor forever. So this is our one takeaway for today is that you would marvel at the perfect patience and the lavish grace of God. Marvel at the perfect patience and the lavish grace of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes this, verse 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his, listen to this, perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe on him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I I believe that Judah and all who know their sinfulness and the faithfulness and the grace and the kindness of God can echo Paul's words with tears and with conviction. I am the foremost, but he had mercy on me. And if he had mercy on me, who could he not have mercy on? He had mercy on me to display his perfect patience so that people would look on me and my testimony and my story and say, if he would do it for him, then he'll do it for me. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's all he had to work with. And he displayed this not only with his life, but in the stock that he, cho- he chose to come from. That was intentional. He came to Judah and to his family on purpose to say, look, he came born of a virgin so that he didn't inherit the sinful nature of his fathers, but he came among us into this kind of family, into your kind of family, so that he could redeem from among the brokenness and the ashes of your sin a people for his own possession. In Revelation chapter 5, we read of the Lamb of God who alone is worthy to ransom for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he's made us a kingdom and a priest unto God, and he is called forever the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Look at the miracle the, the mercy, the kindness, the humility of this God. That he would take one who deserved the wrath of God and he forgives him and raises him up and puts him in a place of honor and then chooses to be identified by this man because he brought him into covenant relationship with him. This is a marvel of marvel that God can make a way for Judah to be forgiven and freed and brought into relationship. And how much more made a way for us to be forgiven and free and brought into relationship with him that he can make a way for us. And this is the glory of the power of the cross and the the wonder that is propitiation. It's the essence of what Jesus came to do. The angel announced at his birth, you will call his name Jesus because why? He will save his people from their sins. But these kind of stories highlight this is not, that's not just happening in a vacuum. He came to save you from real sin. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was so wicked that God couldn't bear him. But Jesus is the firstborn of all creation that was so righteous that the grave could not keep him. He was so righteous that by the power of his indestructible life and the perfection of his holiness, He absorbed the wrath that our wickedness deserved in a moment, forever, for all of his people, 
for all the ages, he absorbed our wrath and the judgment that we deserved, and he walked out of the grave, risen and reigning, never to die again. This is the miracle of propitiation, that he takes our wrath and he leaves in his wake the blessings that only he deserves by his righteous life. So that if anyone would receive him, we get every blessing in the heavenly places, but get the miracle of adoption as sons. So he offers the gift of adoption and forgiveness to real sinners if they would just turn from their sin and place their trust in Jesus. And so I think the, the, the theme verse that I've chosen to end today with, and Eric and Heather, you guys can come back up. Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Paul writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And I've been praying that this fresh view of the holiness of God would put us as the church of God in the fear of God. That we would see this God is holy. Jesus did not make sin less sinful. He gave us the law so that we could see how exceedingly sinful it is and that he is holy and that you and I actually deserve death for this morning. But behold the kindness of God in Christ. That he would, by his perfect patience in us, demonstrate to the world the nature of his salvation and of his mercy and his kindness. So my exhortation to those who have yet to believe in Christ comes from Romans chapter 2 in the text that we were just in about us judging people for the very same things that we do. Paul says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is not there for you to assume that this is the norm and what you deserve and then be shocked when God gives somebody what they deserve. It is his kindness that is meant to woo you to repentance with the coming wrath of God bearing down on you if you do not repent and turn to Jesus. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So my prayer, my, my plea with you is that it would not be so with you, that you would not be storing up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment, but that you would turn to Christ and be saved from the judgment to come and experience the mercy and the kindness of God in him. You can have today, you can have walked in never having heard the gospel before in your life, having been dead in your sin, and God can awaken you to his kindness in Christ today, and you can say, God, I am sorry for my sins. And I believe that Jesus paid for them at the cross. And I'm coming to you. That by believing on you, I would receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life in your name. I want to follow Jesus. That is why, to this point, God has shown you kindness and mercy in your life. It's to awaken you to the 
ultimate kindness that he has provided for you in the cross of his son. Our sin is so evil before God that he had to crucify his own son to pay for it. But he loved you so much that he crucified his own son to pay for it. So that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But there's also a call to a worshipful wonder for those who are in Christ. And I'll leave you with this text before we move into a time of communion together. Listen to this, just in a spirit of prayer, in a spirit of gratitude to the Lord Jesus for his mercy. Listen to this text, Titus chapter three. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating each other. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father, your grace is surprising. It's shocking when we consider what we are due because of the life that we have lived and what you offer to us instead because of the righteousness of Christ and his offering of himself in our place. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness and the freedom and the sonship that belongs to all who have placed their trust in Christ alone for salvation. Lord Jesus, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves so that no one could boast before you and so that we could come before you with humility and praise of your mercy and your kindness. I pray that this morning, this would have been a, a kind of wake-up call to the sinfulness of sin so that salvation would be sweet again to us. Lord, give us eyes afresh to see what we deserve and give us eyes to see afresh the sufficiency of Christ that because of Him, we are not destined for wrath but for sanctification in Him. Lord, I pray for those who have yet to call on Your name. Lord, would they turn from their sin and believe on you and be rescued from the wrath to come. Lord, may we come to this table in a worthy manner. Search us and try us. See if there be sin that we've been prizing above you, our own will that we have been chasing above your will, a, a loving of ourselves and our own pleasures and passions over obedience to the revealed will of God. Lord, forgive us for the times that we've been too busy for you. Lord, bring us to a humility and a repentance. And may we rejoice afresh in the pardon that is ours in Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.